This is episode 81. COVID-19 vaccines are being administered as we speak. Getting to this point has been an enormous feat, but it's really only the beginning. It's one thing to deliver the vaccine to several million uh, healthcare workers within the state. It's a whole nother thing to deliver it to 40 million Californians. In this episode, the logistical mountain that needed to be conquered in the COVID-19 pandemic response. Cal OES was the tip of the coordination spear in California, creating 15 task forces to focus its massive effort on things like PPE procurement and distribution networks. The team has done a tremendous amount of work to make sure that the state of California is prepared to handle you know, the waves that occurred in the spring, but also the summer, and, and now the largest wave coming into the fall. But the ongoing response is littered with landmines, challenges that pop from things as simple as a purchase order and their exploitation by opportunistic fly-by-night suppliers. Getting a PO from a state agency was like a golden ticket to accessing the PPE supply chain. So we had to develop processes and tools to filter out the scammers. Hear the story up to this point from a guy who's held that spear and led the logistics team and helped evolve Cal OES from old school legacy processes to a more high-tech, data and analytics-driven decision-making system. This new agility will again be put to the test with vaccine distribution. And we are gonna do everything in our power to make sure that we can deliver the vaccine to Californians as quickly as the manufacturers can deliver it to us. COVID-19 Pandemic Response Logistics with Grady Joseph, right now. All right, in this episode, thank you for joining us. We have a good man by the name of Grady Joseph. But if you see his emails, it actually comes across as Joseph Grady. So it can be confusing, right? It's always hard having two first names. <laughs> yeah, me too. Sean Boyd, you see? Yeah, so anyway, great to have you here, Joseph. You are the Assistant Director of the Logistics Task Force here That's at Cal right. OES. But that's for the COVID-19 response. You have other... Correct. I have a day job as well. You have a day job. <laughs> this has taken over your day job, right? Exactly. So we are here over uh, in our Mather headquarters area at a separate building, and we are socially distanced. What would you say this is? About eight, eight feet, 10 feet? Eight feet, like 10 feet. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And Plenty of got space. Our, and we've got our masks on. Absolutely. Okay. Safety so, first. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're here to talk to you today about the COVID-19 response from Cal OES and sort of the immense challenges that you and the agency face with regard to our role in the COVID-19 response. So I think, first of all, we need to kind of let people know from the beginning um, how you got involved in this and what your role is and some of the things that you face. So let's go ahead and take them back to the beginning. Sure. Um, so, you know, covid or the Cal OES response to COVID really began back in January with the repatriation flights from China and as well as, uh, you know, various cruise ships that were coming back into port, like the Grand Princess. Uh, I happened to be with a team doing earthquake response in Puerto Rico um, at that time in January and February. And then, you know, in March, this really ramped up as we uh, began to understand the 
unknown levels of community spread occurring at that time. And um, that's really where where we, you know, fully activated the state operations center, um, created, you know, 15 task forces to focus on different areas of the COVID response, um, the largest being the logistics task force, which was focused on um, both procuring and setting up the distribution network for personal protective equipment to uh, backstop frontline uh, healthcare responders, but also building out and creating additional capacity within the medical system. So specifically field hospitals known as federal medical stations, um, which are now repurposed as California medical stations, um, as well as alternate care facilities at uh, several strategic locations throughout the state. So uh, across those kind of two major lines of effort, the team has done a tremendous amount of work to make sure that the state of California uh, is prepared to handle you know, the waves that occurred in, in the spring, but also the summer, and, and now the largest wave coming into the fall, uh, which we're currently experiencing. So, uh, you know, everybody's read the news stories, right, of the just drastic supply chain breakdown in uh, PPE manufacturing uh, combined with just massive demand all Worldwide, over the globe. Worldwide, actually, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, you know, both of those things together, less supply, more demand, right, uh, created a very, very challenging situation for uh, the globe, but especially, you know, the United States of America. And so... Um, you know, in those early days, our mission was to make sure that we had as much product as necessary to, to keep our medical system functioning. Um, and so, you know, because the traditional suppliers, you know, did not have the, the capability to meet all of the demands, you kind of had every, you know, shady business character out there uh, starting their PPE broker business overnight. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we were just inundated with thousands and thousands of offers uh, from, you know, all sorts of different people offering all sorts of things, right? Whether it be counterfeit N95 masks or, um, you know, the, the, the big one was that if you could get a purchase order from a state, you could go to 3M and some of their distributors to, to fill that. And so getting a PO um, from a state agency was like a golden ticket uh -huh. to accessing the PPE supply chain. So we had to develop processes and tools to basically filter out the scammers um, because they didn't have any product. They didn't have a line on a product, but they were banking and betting on receiving that purchase order from the state of California so that they could then, um, you know, try to make some money off of us. Very opportunistic. Very opportunistic. We saw the, you know, price of an N95 mask go from you know, around 50, 75 cents a piece, uh, all the way up to $12 a piece in some cases. So just a really, really challenging environment that um, required us to, to move very fast because it's extremely competitive, right? We were competing against New York, Texas, Florida, um, as well as the European Union, right, for this product. It's a global supply chain. Um, and so we had to move fast and then, then also make sure that we didn't uh, lose taxpayer dollars in the process, right, right. Um, which we are you know, extremely proud to say that we, we did not lose any taxpayer money wow. um, through this entire and what effort. a challenge that must have been. Holy moly. 
yeah, we had about a 25-person team who did nothing uh, in those early days but vet these offers from different companies. Um, we had to stand up kind of new technology solutions that we didn't have before um, using a you know customer relationship management tool to vet leads and, and process them through a pipeline so that we could then get them into uh, procurement channels with our uh, Department of General Services partners. So the challenges really started piling up with you guys, and you had to find ways very quickly to face those challenges and surmount them. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the first part is just get, is buying the, the PPE, right? Uh, once you buy it, you have to have some place to put it and you have to have a distribution network to move it, right? Um, and we started out with two warehouses, the California Department of Public Health had a warehouse in West Sacramento and Cal OES uh, has a small warehouse that was down in Stockton at the time. And um, so a total of about, you know, 100,000 square feet between those two. Which is not a lot. Which is not a lot. And so uh, we are now at about eight warehouses for 1.5 million square feet. Oh, yeah. So um, pretty much overnight, we had to, you know, 10, 15x our uh, warehouse logistics footprint within the state of California. Amazing. I was just at uh, the West Sac warehouse a couple of days ago. I was at the one in Dixon. There's another one in Dixon. Yep huge facilities and that one over there i believe is being co-managed by ups is it yeah exactly and i'm looking at that and i'll put some pictures up here uh with this and so if you'll go to oesnews.com and you find this podcast you'll see some of the photos it's uh 425 million i believe in 95 and surgical masks in a warehouse do you remember the scene from Raiders of the lost ark at the very end where they show that you know they're hiding the Ark of the Covenant in this warehouse, and it just seems to go on forever. That's kind of what this looked like. <laughs> exactly. And, and believe it or not, uh, we have a million-square-foot warehouse down south that's about twice the size of that one. Wow. So, yep. It's, it's pretty impressive when you see uh, it full, full, almost, oh, yeah. to, almost to the ceiling. Not quite, but almost. It's pretty impressive. So you had these challenges that you, you had to face. You had to make sure that you weren't losing uh, taxpayer dollars. Uh, a lot of opportunistic uh, entrepreneurs, and I'm going to use that in air quotes without doing the air quotes. You had a, a massive amounts of responsibility, and yet at the same time, you were working quickly to potentially save lives. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's what it's all about, you know. Um, yeah. So... You know, we did a number of efforts to try to, uh, you know, bend the curve, if you will, right? The stay-at-home orders, um, you know, the various restrictions that we all live with in our day-to-day -day lives now. Um, but, you know, we still have to be prepared for if those don't work, right? That's the, one of the biggest challenges in emergency management um, is that you, you never want to be underprepared, right? We generally err on the side of being overprepared. Um, which sometimes leads to criticism, but at the end of the day, right, um, we're here to save lives. And, and if you don't have the resources necessary at the time that you need them, um, you know, people will die and, and people will get sick. And so that's what it's all about preventing. Right. And, you know, if you have to apologize for something, apologizing for saving lives, eh, who cares? Exactly. Our, our heart's in the right place. So, um, and we try to make sure that 
you know, we're good stewards of taxpayer dollars and that we're doing everything in, in the right way. Um, but at the end of the day, you cannot snap your fingers and materialize a hundred million and 95s overnight. That takes time. And so, um, you know, that's really the goal is making sure that we're planning out as far as we can so that we can make sure that we meet the need. And I think you've touched on something that's important for people to realize. Those folks who are not in this line of work, I think assume that the government, uh, whether it's the state or the feds or the locals, already have, you know, the sort of the magic wand that they can break the glass, pull the magic wand out, and everything is there. And that's certainly not the case. Again, because we're talking about taxpayer dollars, you have to be fiscally responsible and dial it up when it needs to be dialed up and then dial it back when the need has subsided. So that's the challenge for, for you and people who do what you do is to make sure that you're being fiscally responsible. But then when it comes time to dial it up to potentially save lives and property that you know exactly what you're doing and when to do it. I can only imagine the type of pressure, the strain, the hours that you're putting in. Can you name one or two or some of the biggest challenges that you had? Yeah, so uh, you know, certainly finding the PPE and, and getting it into our shores was one of the biggest challenges. Um, you know, simple things like the resource requesting process. So in the state of California, um, everything is driven by the, the local counties, right? So they have the responsibility for that immediate response and, and the immediate response for public health as well. And so we had this system that was in the, the state of California that previously at its highest peak um, during the campfire in 2018, was they had done about 35 resource requests over that you know several week period uh, when you know that tragic fire took place, and that was the entire event. They did 35 resource requests, and in COVID, um, we were regularly doing hundreds of resource requests a day, and so taking a system right where it's the counties receive that request, they push it up to a region who then pushes it up to the state operations center. Um, if it cannot be met at those lower levels, right, in just 35 pre previously in the entire event, and then now we're regularly doing a few hundred in a single day. Ooh. And so taking that process that was based on email and um, paper, right, and spreadsheets and building a, a scalable infrastructure to be able to meet that demand, um, was probably one of the biggest challenges that we had. And very early on, we kind of set the metric for, for California Prime, right? That expectation that when you order something, you're going to get it in two days. Um, and that was the metric that, that the team set for themselves and that we worked uh, every single day to, to achieve. And we have achieved that, uh, fortunately, I'm, I'm happy to say. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, very much want to be uh, customer-centered, right? At the end of the day, the more time uh, that we waste between receiving that resource request from a hospital um, and actioning it here at the state is time that those nurses and doctors don't have what they need to treat patients and to make sure that uh, they're saving lives. And so um, we want to make that as robust and scalable infrastructure as we possibly can while being cost-effective and uh, data-driven. And so that's been a huge thing for us is, is shifting from this kind of uh, legacy process and legacy infrastructure, right? Often paper-based, often um, emails in Excel to 
using you know really robust systems um, to be able to manage and track all of that, building the analytics to understand how long um, each phase of those things take, how quickly we're able to service our customers in the field, um, where is all of our inventory, right? What's been sitting on a dock, and so just really managing the end-to-end logistics operation at a scale uh, that the state of California has never really had to, I think, was absolutely the biggest challenge. And um, fortunately, we have an amazing team who came together to, you know, put to put in place some very creative solutions very quickly. Um, it was just really all hands on deck. Everybody rolled up their sleeves and was putting in, you know, 12, 15 hours a day, every day for months on end. So, um, wow. you know, we're, we're in a much better place today than we were back in the spring. Uh, but that wasn't, uh, those weren't easy wins for sure. No. In order to do that, you keep mentioning staff and team. So tell me about, uh, real briefly here, sort of the number of people that you have, if you were to count your team members, how many do you have working on this? We'll get Grady Joseph's answer to that in just a moment. On the way, COVID-19 vaccines are already being given in California, but that's not as easy as it may seem. It's one thing to deliver the vaccine to several million uh, healthcare workers within the state. It's a whole nother thing to deliver it to 40 million Californians. Newly developed processes give Cal OES agility in decision-making and will again be put to the test with vaccine distribution and we are gonna do everything in our power to make sure that we can deliver the vaccine to Californians as quickly as the manufacturers can deliver it to us. That and more on the way. So let's get back to our conversation with Grady Joseph, Assistant Director, Cal OES Logistics Task Force. If you were to count your team members, how many do you have working on this? So at the peak, I think we exceeded 100 on the logistics task force, and that's just that was focused on the actual task mm. force, right? That's not, um, you know, the hundreds of people who came together to, you know, uh, stand up the sleep train arena, right, and get all the beds and all the infrastructure set up in there. Um, so we have a, a cross-functional team of, um, you know, multiple state agencies, so Department of General Services, uh, California Department of Public Health, Emergency Services, agency IMSA, um, as well as Cal OES as the, the lead coordination uh, agency for emergency management response in the state. Incredible. Kudos to, and, and I, I mean, that just sounds so trite, but really kudos to your entire team. Tell me about another challenge that you face that stands out in your mind as a, one of the biggies. Um, I mean, we definitely had, you know, there's huge challenges in, um, I mean, you kind of name it, right? So uh, testing uh, was a huge challenge, making sure that we had uh, processes, tools, supplies, things like that to be able to scale uh, this testing infrastructure in the state. That was um, a massive lift that requires working you know, very closely with uh, both the labs that process all the tests, where all, at, at one point we were trying to figure out where all the machines um, and what type of machines were all throughout the state so that we could most effectively resource them, right? So if you think about the example of, um, you know, limited supplies of testing, uh, you have to be able to effectively understand um, of those limited supplies, where can they both uh, most effectively be put to use, right? And so you might have a situation where um, 
a you know plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills is has a really good line on testing supplies and is able to um, you know test their high-end clientele um, whereas a smaller clinic in the Central Valley doesn't have those same relationships with a vendor and so can't get their access to those mm-hmm. testing supplies um, even though the population that they serve is arguably in greater need of understanding the spread of the virus and things like that in their community so that they can prevent transmission um, than somebody who's, you know, more affluent and less likely to uh, experience the kind of negative ramifications of catching COVID. And so, you know, we had to do things early on to make sure that um, we were influencing the supply chain to ensure that we were getting supplies to the facilities and the machines and the areas of the state that most needed it. Um, and one of the biggest challenges in emergency management, right, is, is that kind of scarce resource adjudication. Um, we had a team called the uh, multi-agency coordination group, right, who's responsible for uh, making those kind of tough decisions. I have demand for 1,095 masks, but I only have 595 masks to give. And so who doesn't get the masks, right? So we have to prioritize those limited resources to make sure that they're going to the place that they're going to be most effective um, and making those uh, strategic decisions in as much of a data-driven agnostic way as we possibly can. And so I think, you know, that's that's a huge challenge uh, that we really didn't face before this, you kind of think about it and, and, you know, you go into training courses and things of that nature and and they talk about it. Right. Um, but rare, very rarely does, you know, one experience an event that requires you to actually implement those things. Um, we've actually had a couple of cases this year where, um, where we had to, we also had to do that with the fires, right. With, um, with personnel, for instance, right. There's not enough firefighters to fight all the fires. And so where do you, where do you send those resources? That's That's right. So let me ask you this. We are now on the verge of starting to collect and then distribute these vaccines for the COVID-19. Where is that process now for you? And what are you seeing as some of the biggest challenges for those vaccines? So the early days of the vaccine um, are hard, but they're actually pretty straightforward, right? So um, there's a number of phases that the the, the vaccine is going to go through. And so in these early days where we are, where we're waiting for the emergency use authorization to go through um, with Federal Health and Human Services, those initial doses are going to be um, small in number and they're going to go to very targeted populations, right? So um, healthcare workers first and then, uh, you know, uh, residents of um, elderly homes and things like that, folks who are, are at the highest risk of uh, COVID fatality. And so um, because of that, the initial days are actually fairly straightforward, right? Because the the Pfizer vaccine, which is the one who's closest to authorization, and then the Moderna product is right behind that. Um, The Pfizer has very complicated logistics challenges because it has to be stored at negative 80 degrees Celsius. And so um, transporting that, keeping it at that temperature is very challenging. Uh, But the institutions that do have the infrastructure to be able to keep those things that cold are the 
healthcare institutions, right? The hospitals, the uh, research laboratories, the UCs, things like that in California. And so we are uh, absolutely preparing to make sure that all those facilities get their allocations of those initial products. Um, but where our our real focus is now is that scaling of it, right? So um, it's one thing to deliver the vaccine to several million uh, healthcare workers within the state. It's a whole nother thing to deliver it to 40 million Californians. And the logistical complexities that are associated with making that happen quickly um, are just immense. And it's really going to make the uh, numbers that we've done previously uh, in terms of our logistics operations for PPE and things like that look uh, fairly trivial. So, um, you know, if you want to vaccinate everybody within a six month time period, assuming you have the, the supplies and the vaccine, um, we have to do in excess of 300,000 vaccines a day. Hmm. And if you compare that to the amount of COVID testing we've done, right, that some of the highest days we've ever had have been 215,000. And we really hover more in the 120 to 150,000 a day number. And so you really have to kind of 2x um, what we do for testing with vaccines, um, and vaccines are more time consuming. It takes about 10 minutes per person to vaccinate, and then they have to get two shots. And so, um, just the logistics of that are, are massive and it's going to require a, a whole nother huge push, um, that we're going to have to work very closely with the counties to make sure that they have the resources, um, to accomplish. I'm stressed just listening to you talk about this. I can only only imagine. Wow. So let me ask you this then. If you have a very tight window, okay, you said six months roughly, and you're going to be looking at 300,000 plus a day, do you already have uh, the guidance in hand? So have you already figured out how you're going to make that happen? So we have uh, plans throughout the state for uh, mass points of distribution, and those are you know very similar to what you would do in a, if we had a large earthquake, right? Uh, you had to get food and water to populations that are theoretically in a in a highly impacted area. So um, LA receives a 7.0 earthquake. So the the planning piece there. Um, is is similar to that in nature what's obviously much more complicated with the requirements to keep the vaccine cold and um you know managing that and the staff required to deliver it there's a lot of good plans from the federal government upon relying on you know community pharmacies to build more capacity make sure that all the hospitals and medical systems have that um but how do you then, how do you make sure they have that though you know how do you make sure that these pharmacies and the hospitals have what what you need to get these points of distribution up and running. So uh, it's a very close partnership with the federal government. So uh, through Operation Warp Speed, the feds have taken on a huge portion of that responsibility. So we have, um, they're obviously making sure that the uh, vaccine comes in. So we're responsible for ensuring uh, the ordering process and the allocations to the different facilities in the different counties within the state. And then the feds are sending obviously the vaccine and they're supposed to be sending ancillary PPE kits to make sure that the staff who are administering the vaccine have that stuff. Uh, the real lift that's to us is to make sure that we can backstop any issues that happen within that plan. Uh, so the contingencies, 
what happens if the federal government or the you know vaccine manufacturers plans don't work right and you have gaps in those things or issues um, with any good plan you're always going to have some hiccups and so we're really planning for um, you know what happens if the plan doesn't go uh, according to you know what we all think it will or hope it will and then really looking towards uh, how are we building capacity within the locals to do that mass vaccination so we talked about the points of distribution um, there's a huge staffing component there so if you are going to send um, thousands of people a day into a stadium type of environment to do kind of a drive-through vaccine like you're going to do a, a drive-through test that we have um, that requires thousands of administrative staff to do everything from uh, control traffic to uh, make sure that folks are understand if you know the requirements of the vaccine you have to come back 21 days later often and so that whole planning component uh, is being scaled right now so um, the local jurisdictions and the counties are providing us with their plans right now um, fortunately we have a little bit of lead time so we got about you know, 45 days until we start to see um, real significant quantities of the vaccine. And so between now and then is a, is a real sprint to make sure that all of those necessary items are in place so that we can, um, you know, catch that 100 mile an hour fastball, if you will. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So now that you are enjoying, and I use that term very loosely, a 45 day lead time, do you have a chance to sort of reflect on what you have done so far and whether or not they have worked or have you noticed some things that maybe you could improve upon moving forward? Grady Joseph will answer that question in just a moment. But first, the formidable task of scaling up a distribution network to accommodate highly sensitive COVID-19 vaccines and we are gonna do everything in our power to make sure that we can deliver the vaccine to Californians as quickly as the manufacturers can deliver it to us. More insight from Grady Joseph as we continue. Do you have a chance to sort of reflect on what you have done so far and whether or not they have worked or have you noticed some things that maybe you could improve upon moving forward? I mean, we can always improve, right? So um, I think, you know, and this is the government, so there's always places that, that we can get better. I think we try to focus a lot on our responsiveness and making sure that we're in front of the power curve, if you will. Um, and, and to be clear, on the 45 days, uh, there's going to be a lot of work between now and then, but that 45-day mark is when the real ramp-up occurs. So there's there's plenty of vaccine and, and logistics happening Um Right now, actually, there's a, a test that's we're receiving our first Pfizer shipper, uh, ultra low cold shipper today at, at UC Davis Medical Center. So um, we're actually getting our, our first kind of flavor of how uh, the logistics component is going to work um, actually in person today, which is uh, exciting. So in terms of getting better, um, we're always looking at, at what we can do. So uh, in the early days back in March and April, for instance, we had these large federal medical stations that showed up. Um, there are 250 bed field hospitals, if you will, in a box that you bring into a, a stadium, right? So I think uh, one of them is at the LA Convention Center. 
what we found was that that 250 bed uh, module was not flexible enough to meet the needs of the vast majority of the communities within California. So you can't just drop that into like a high school gymnasium. You need something like a convention center or an arena or something like that. And so what we've done is we've taken uh, many of those back and we created smaller, more agile units. So instead of 250 beds, they're now uh, 50 bed California medical stations. And those are a lot more tactical for us, right? Because where the hospital capacity is the most fragile is generally in your um, smaller, more rural counties. Uh, LA has a ton of hospital infrastructure um, and lots of areas where you can kind of build out more capacity. Um, but a community like uh, Butte County, for instance, right, doesn't have so much of that and they don't have so many large spaces where you can kind of uh, centralize those things. And so we broke those down to create more flexibility for the communities that really need those most. And so um, instead of eight large federal medical stations, we now have uh, 22 and will eventually be um, 30 smaller, more agile California medical stations. And that's really kind of those lessons learned of those initial deployments of how we need to kind of refine this and, and tailor it to meet the needs. Uh, we found very early on where we were building out our kind of own infrastructure it's uh, actually more efficient to uh, partner with the medical system and expand their existing infrastructure right so uh, making sure that you're much more centralized to the the existing medical distribution and, and uh, logistics and personnel infrastructure that the medical system uses already and expanding that out rather than creating kind of net new facilities um, is a better way to go. So those are kind of some of the, the overall things that, that we've learned and, and are always trying to make sure that we're improving so that we can you know better serve the state of California and our citizens. So how are you making sure that once you're gone and once all of these other folks are gone here who are learning those lessons, how are you making sure that you're, the next generation is already going to be knowledgeable and don't have to learn these things all over again? So uh, fortunately, we have a fantastic planning and preparedness directorate within Cal OES. And, you know, we've been uh, pretty heavily engaged in kind of the after action process. Uh, we're obviously not done with COVID yet. So it's kind of a, an interim, um, continuously evolving after action to understand what worked, what didn't work. And, you know, this event has really, you know, stressed the entirety of the system, um, to the point where we've recognized lots of gaps, right? Lots of places where we're lacking doctrine um, and really making a concerted effort to, to document everything that we're doing well, um, document places where we need to uh, expand and grow. I think this has been a huge shift for uh, Cal OES in terms of how we look at uh, data and analytics and making more data-driven decisions, um, really growing to, to modernize the organization so that we can be more agile, uh, have greater fidelity of you know, what's going on, you know, building these large kind of common operating pictures so that we have better um, understanding. And I think that's gonna drive the, the next generation, right? We're really trying to evolve the organization uh, so that, we're less dependent on kind of these the older legacy paper-driven processes. And that's the same, you know, when I was, I came from uh, FEMA, worked both in Washington, D.C. and headquarters and at FEMA Region 9 in Oakland. And 
you know, government just is behind the private sector in terms of how we how we tend to do things. Um, but COVID has certainly been kind of that that push that everybody needed to to really change the way that we do business. And I think that's going to have a, a really lasting impact. Um, working remotely, for instance, right? And all the social distancing that we've had to do has really pushed us to rely more on, uh, you know, video conferencing tools. Um, you know, you used to use the the paper route slip to, you know, get a, a memo up to the director, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, guess what? That doesn't work when 60% of your... Uh, staff are working remotely, you know, and so we use digital signatures and DocuSign, right, and have um, really, you know, modernized uh, a lot of the processes that were, you know, quite legacy, so. That's terrific. That's, that's so good to hear. If you had to talk to a group of civilians, you had to go to a town hall meeting, what would you tell them about the upcoming processes of this vaccine distribution and whether or not you're going to be getting it and whether or not you should trust it? Maybe that's not in your wheelhouse, but what would you tell folks about the upcoming, the next, let's say the next 60 to 90 days? So I think it's um, very important for everybody to to be patient. Um, you know, there's going to be the we're really dependent on how fast the manufacturers can create the vaccine and ship it and get it to us. Um, and we are going to do everything in our power to make sure that we can deliver the vaccine uh, to Californians as quickly as the manufacturers can deliver it to us. That's going to come with challenges, like I said, right, that just the scale and scope of, of how many people we need to vaccinate um, is going to be you know, a, a challenge, but, uh, you know, I think it's important for everybody to, to trust the science, right? Where California has our, our own review board, we're going to review, um, health and human services, you know, determination for the emergency youth authorization that, uh, Pfizer and Moderna have applied for. And so, you know, the faster that we, get people vaccinated and kind of reach that level of herd immunity, if you will, is the faster that we can all return to our, our day-to-day lives, right? Our, our pre-COVID lives, if you will, right? Uh, going to restaurants, uh, not wearing masks anymore and things like that. And so, um, you know, well, I'm I'm not the, uh, the scientist who's on the review board or anything like that. Um, just, you know, would encourage people who, who may be skeptical to, to trust the science, right? I think it's been fairly correct um, throughout this event and throughout the pandemic, science is going to get us out of this, right? And so um, we just kind of encourage people's patience and, and faith in the in the process. I'm envisioning a, a future um, in, in the not so distant future where folks are going to have, you know, many are going to have the vaccine, many won't, whether or not they're planning on getting them, who knows. But there's going to be a, a point where, you know, some let's say half of the population has it, half doesn't. I also envision a point where there is going to be some kind of process where retailers and restaurants and airlines and that kind of thing want to know whether or not you've had the vaccine to allow you to participate in whatever it is you're trying to do. Has that been discussed or is that something you can talk about? Uh, is that even in your lane? At, at not, not in my lane. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there, 
I mean, right now to go to Hawaii, for instance, you had to have a negative test when you leave and, you know, a negative test when you arrive. I don't think that anything um, like that is going to go away. So it's either going to be that you've got negative tests, that you've uh, had COVID and you can prove that you are, you know, have the antibodies that make you resistant to being infected again, or or you've had a vaccine, you know. But that's it. Um, How do you prove? Uh, well, with every vaccine, you're going to get a vaccination card, similar to how you get your, um, you know, when you go get your your measles vaccine and you get your series before you go to school, right? In California, mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. to have uh, proof of vaccination or um, proof of a, you know, medical exemption from getting yeah. vaccinated in order to go to school, right? Yeah. So um, there's has been no conversation uh, that I'm aware of or privy to uh, mm. about yeah, any sort yeah. of vaccination requirements for, for COVID. I just know that uh, I've had a lot of people talk to me about that. It's like, well, how are you going to prove it? How are you gonna, it's, not, it's a good question. I don't know, but probably the way you normally would. But uh, I mean, so, when I take my, uh, I just got a, we got a, we got a puppy over uh, quarantine, right? During yeah. the stay at home. Uh, my fiance was, she's a hairstylist. And so, uh, you know, her business was shut down for, for a couple of months. And, uh, so we got a puppy, but I can't take the puppy to, uh, go to doggy daycare or be boarded unless I prove to them that, that they have, uh, been vaccinated. And so, um, not a whole lot different. Yeah. It's not a whole lot different. I think we deal with this in every day with, uh, all the other kind of biological threats that um, have impacted humanity over the you know last couple centuries and um, you know the science is, is really saved millions and millions and millions of lives and so uh, I think it's going to continue to do that. We've been talking to Grady Joseph who is the assistant director logistics task force here at Cal OES. He is uh, one of the key point persons with regard to the response uh, efforts here for COVID-19. And uh, I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy. You were in a meeting before I came, and you're probably going to go to a meeting right after this, aren't you? <laughs> right after. <laughs> but thank you very much, Sean. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with yeah. you um, and sharing you know, with the broader population a little bit about all the great work that our logistics team has been doing over the last several months. Hey, thanks a lot, Grady. Good luck to you, and uh, we'll like to touch base maybe in the future and find out how things are going. Absolutely. All right, good luck. Thanks. You know, it's funny. I recently had a conversation with my wife about the enormity of this logistical undertaking. And she said to me, logistics is easy. It's just scheduling and shipping. Well, she clearly had no idea what's involved in logistics of a pandemic response. I'm going to have her listen to this podcast and then talk to me about how easy it is. So my thanks to Grady Joseph for squeezing me in in between critical meetings to talk to us about his work since COVID-19 hit us early in the year. Hey, if you like listening to All Hazards, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. We do appreciate it. And remember to wear those masks, folks, when walking around in public and when you can't socially distance. It just may save a life. For everyone here at the Cal OES Office of Public Information, I'm Sean Boyd. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.